We are, Lord willing, our goal tonight is to finish this uh, letter to Timothy, the second one, and this final, chronologically, the final letter from the Apostle Paul. Uh, We're going to start in just a couple of weeks um, into uh, another study of uh, the third of these pastoral epistles in your order of your scriptures, the way the New Testament is laid out for you, which is not chronological, by the way. Uh, But we're going to start looking at Titus, the final and the shortest of the three. But for this evening's sake, we're going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 4. And I want to jump right into this this evening and not not hold off any longer. We have quite a few verses to cover and quite a few intricate details to discuss. But this is a very unique section and this is a very unique study. Um, Most of the time when we come to this portion, it's really kind of, we're flying. We're breezing past this because these are details of Paul's life. And yet I think Second Timothy has warned us, um, this letter as a whole has warned us not to hurry past any portion of Scripture, right? It was only a few verses ago that Paul reminded Timothy that he could be equipped and he can be sufficiently equipped for every task of ministry because he has the all-sufficient, inspired Word of God. And so what we're about to read tonight is as inspired as those verses are in chapter 3. And they are equally beneficial for our instruction and for our reproof. And, and though at times there are portions that we work harder to understand, we still must come to them um, with an anticipation that God is going to use them in our lives and that He has a message for us and He has lessons for us to conform us more in our thinking so that we might reflect in our living the person and the character of Jesus Christ. And that's why we're here this evening. And I trust that's why you're here tonight. Let me read these verses to you just to set the table. I'll read all of chapter 4. You can follow along. We'll begin in verse 1 and and, uh, carry through all the way to the end of the chapter. Paul says in this final section to young Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of evangelists, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm, and the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me, May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I, might, so I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring, bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remains remained at Corinth and I left Trophimus who was ill at Miletus do your best to come to me before winter Eubulus sends greetings to you as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers the Lord be with your spirit grace be with you and officially at that point the title for tonight's message comes true it is the end it is the end of the inspired writings of the apostle Paul It is the end of his ministry life as he traveled from church to church that he had founded and preached the gospel to and gave leadership to. And there he was in a jail cell in Rome and 
our history books would tell us that he never got out. In fact, it was not too long after this point that he met with his executioner who chopped off his head and sent him to his final rescue to the heavenly reward that he was so anticipating here in this final chapter to Timothy. As much as it is the end, and as much as last week we looked at the end, Paul is very much alive and well here in these last days, and he is active in these last days, and I think we can learn quite a few valuable truths from these final verses. One of the things that strikes me about these final verses is how many people are mentioned in these last couple of paragraphs. I mean, Paul does this throughout his letters, but he names names. Um, Lots of people. Paul must have had some kind of memory for names. Um, Maybe you have had an opportunity to know a number of people from a number of different venues. That's my own testimony, being a uh, a wanderer through most of my life. I went through three different schools before third grade. Then I went to two different high schools. I went to a junior high and a high school, and then I went to a different high school, my rival high school, to finish out my junior and senior year. So I played one year, or I mean I studied one year at my high school, and then I went and I played for my rival high school, which gave me two sets of high school friends. I went from there to a university and did my undergraduate studies with 5,000 other students there on campus. Um, my wife was um, associate student body president um, her junior year, and so we we knew a lot of people. By the end of my time in university days, I guesstimated that I knew a couple thousand different people by name. And uh, how I keep those names, I have no. I don't try to keep the names. I don't work. I don't have any system. I have nothing to share with you. I just have a lot of names in my mind. I went from that to grad school at the Master's Seminary and picked up 300 more friends, you know, 300 new people to know. And all the while, through all those different schools, I was involved in different churches. My dad pastored three different churches through my younger years as he planted churches, four different churches. We finished high school at one church um, that was uh, larger than all the rest combined. And uh, obviously, being a pastor's son, I was known and expected to know a number of people. All this was a network that the Lord was building. I then worked jobs in the summer at ministries, at camp ministries, kind of like Hume Lake here, and then different church internships, which gave me contacts in West Virginia, as well as South Carolina and Pittsburgh, which is where I met David Morris in one of those internships and got to know and love him worked at Starbucks. I worked at Grace Community Church while we were in seminary down at Masters. Um, I have family on both sides that is extremely close. I have the Bailey family, which is a network of people all in Ohio. I have the Sells family, which is actually the Sicilian side of my family, uh, my mom's side. And uh, they are extremely close and all live within a couple miles of each other. I have the Peters family, which is my wife's family, and the Went family, which is my wife's mom's family. They're all in L.A. So all of these connections bring me to think I know a lot of people. And yet, when I look at the Apostle Paul, and especially here at the end of 2 Timothy, I don't think I hold a candle to the Apostle Paul. I'll tell you why. Because if we added up the number of names, I don't know where we would be. That's speculation of where we would compare. But I can tell you this, the intimate knowledge and affection and concern for individual people expressed by the Apostle Paul falls far far short of where I would be with those people that I would say I know or are my friends. None of us has the kind of ministry heart that the Apostle Paul did, though that is our desire. And here at the conclusion of his ministry, you're going to see it put on display. Now last week... We divided up this section into five major components, and we looked at one of them last week. We're going to finish this week with the final four of these uh, concluding comments from the Apostle Paul. Last week we saw Paul's final confession in verses 6 through 8, and that was his declaration that he had finished well. He had accomplished what he had been set out to do by the Lord Jesus in Acts chapter 9 on the Damascus Road. He had been a faithful servant. Tonight we're going to look at the final four components of this conclusion to Paul's writing ministry and to this letter, and I hope these will be an encouragement to you. In verses 9 through 13, let's start there with Paul's final command 
And it's just really one command that he gives. It's Paul's final command to Timothy, and it's found in verse number 9. Do your best to come to me soon. Um, This is really Paul's final word to Timothy. Come to Rome, Timothy. I want to see you. Timothy is Paul's son in the faith. He desires to see him before the conclusion of his life, which he is so confident is about to take place, he tells us in verse 7. He is aware that the end is near and his precious son is the one that he desires to see. Paul speaks about Timothy in just uh, very sweet terms. If you, if you want to turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, we can look at a couple of these just to give you an idea of how he felt about young Timothy, the pastor at the church of Ephesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verses 16 and 17 He tells the Corinthian church, this is quite a few years earlier, he urges them, in verse 16 then, to be imitators of me. One of those amazing comments from the Apostle Paul. Be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere and in every church. You see what Paul says about Timothy here? He doesn't just say, I love this kid. He doesn't just say, this young man is special, he's got great gifts, he's going to be a benefit to you. Paul says, I'm sending this guy because there's nothing closer to what the Lord has done in my life than Timothy. And he is faithful, and he is my friend, he is my son, he is my child in the faith. That was one description. He goes on to describe him in Philippians chapter 2 with similar words. In Philippians chapter 2, in verse 19 and, verses 19 and 20, Paul says the same kind of things about Timothy. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you. That's the Philippian church at Philippi. He hopes to send Timothy to them soon, so that I may be cheered by the news of you. Verse 20 says, For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. I mean, there's no one who mirrored the character and the transformed life of the Apostle Paul like young Timothy. He was a Paul imitator in the best sense. He was a reflection of the heartbeat of the Apostle. And so he commends Timothy with this final command to come and see him. He wants the fellowship with Timothy. And we're going to see some of the details of why he's concerned to see young Timothy. The why question is answered in these next several verses. He begins to explain it in verse 10. Excuse me. He says in verse 10, For Demas, one of the teammates of the Apostle Paul, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he's very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. Here's the reason why the Apostle Paul is desperate for Timothy's fellowship. His urgency is based upon the departure of his team. Here's the Apostle Paul. We can't even fathom his experience in the prison at Rome. But he's not just there in prison writing this letter to Timothy. He's there alone. He's down to just his physician, his personal physician, none other than Luke. And he and Luke are there, and he is desperate for the company and the fellowship of his brothers in Christ. Now, what happened to his team? What happened to the people that traveled with him to Rome? They had at some point left Ephesus. They had headed towards Rome. And here is a description of what's gone on since they've arrived at Rome. Well, the first, the first instance and the first individual is a very sad story, and yet a very understandable one in our day and age. And his name is Demas. You haven't met very many people named Demas. Not a lot of, not a lot of little kids named after this fellow. It's kind of like Judas. Not a lot of Judases out there in the world. There's not a lot of Demases, because Demas, being an associate of Paul, traveling with Paul, helping Paul share the gospel, he became ensnared in a trap of love. And it was a love that was given to this present world, very specific words from the Apostle Paul, in love with this present world. At some point, the testimony of Demas' life was, hey Paul, I love the ministry that we're doing, I love the opportunity to serve with you, but I'm in love. I've fallen in love, and it's going to take me elsewhere. 
Unfortunately, Demas' love was not an appropriate affection. It was a love that was centered around here and now and this present world. The, the joys, the temporary pleasures of this world grabbed Demas's heart and he deserted Paul. Paul uses that word and that's a very powerful word. That's a military term. And he viewed Demas's departure to Thessalonica as nothing short of desertion. Those of you men who have served in our military understand the weight of what it is to be on a battlefield and to have soldiers run away from the team, run away from the front line. Our military deals very strongly with such desertion. And the Apostle Paul viewed Demas as one team member that was gone, but it was gone with tragic circumstances because he had fallen in love with this present world. Just a side note. Sometimes I wonder if I would be a Demas. Sometimes I wonder if we were under persecution and we had the opportunity to go as a group and a team and to to minister the gospel and the persecution became so severe that our leaders were taken to prison and and they were executed and, and people we knew from the church were being put up on stakes and covered in tar and burned as candles for Nero's parties. I mean, if this started to happen, how affected and how prepared is your heart right now and my heart right now that we would not be the next Demas in love with what we have here more than what we have in eternity? So much so that we would depart from the gospel ministry and we would run to comfort, which is defined here as Thessalonica, a seaside city where every form of debauchery and sin would have been available to this deserter Demas. We will not die for the gospel. Note this, we will not die for the gospel unless we have lived for the gospel. What makes you think that if the gospel came to mean it would be your life on the line, that you would in any way stand up like the Apostle Paul and like he's commending young Timothy to, what gives us the idea that we would stand in the face of death if we have not been willing to stand for the gospel in the face of no consequence or very little consequence? So Demas departs. The next fellow mentioned here, and these are all men that are mentioned here in this first section, I'm not sure how to say his name. In fact, I think I've already said it twice, and I've said it two different ways, I think, this evening. I have a hard time with this fellow's name. I believe it is Cresens is the right way to say his name. Cresens. Cresens, the Apostle Paul, must have sent to Galatia. Now, I'd love to tell you that there's a whole bunch of information in Acts about Cresens, but there's nothing. We don't even know who this guy is. We didn't even know he existed until he mentioned him here in 2 Timothy at the very end of his writing career. But Cresens must have been a faithful servant. And when he says he sent him or he had gone to Galatia, he's speaking there of the city that had one of the most grounded churches that the Apostle Paul administered to. He does not speak of his desertion. He speaks of him going to Galatia. He speaks the same way of Titus, and we know a lot about Titus. Titus was a faithful servant and friend of the Apostle Paul. He was a co-laborer in the Gospel. And Titus went to Dalmatia. And you say, hey, I'm looking on my map, because I know you hang out in your Bible maps, right? And you're looking on your Bible maps, and you can't find Dalmatia. And I typed it into Google, and Google Earth didn't give me anything. I couldn't even find it. I don't know what it is. Well, that's because Dalmatia is in a region that doesn't show up on your Bible map in the back that talks about Paul's missionary journeys. And actually, it's known by two different names. Dalmatia was one name for it, but the second name, which I'm sure is not any more beneficial to you, is Alicricum. 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 Alicrum. 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 That's what it is. Alicrum. And if you type in Alicrum into your Google Maps or to your Google Earth, you're still not going to find it because the city has since changed its name and it will be very difficult for you to find it. This is on the northern side, north of Macedonia, just outside of the region that we see on our Bible Maps. And so Dalmatia is where Titus is at this point in Paul's writing. Okay? Titus obviously was on Crete. That's what we're going to study in the next book. In the next letter, he was there at Crete. He was a faithful pastor and a leader there in the churches. Paul had sent him to a different region 
at this point later in Titus's life. Now he goes on to say that Luke, in verse 11, Luke alone is with me. This is the very same Luke that wrote the gospel account of Luke. Um, Luke is the only Gentile writer in the New Testament. Isn't that an interesting fact? He's the only Gentile writer in the New Testament. He's the only individual that wrote from a unique perspective because he was not a Jew. And he did not come from a Jewish heritage. In fact, Luke wrote his letters, both Luke or his gospel account in Luke and then his narrative account in Acts, his history books, really, of Jesus and the apostles. He wrote both of those to another Gentile. His name was Theophilus. And there Theophilus received um, the backbone to the validity of the message of the gospel. Luke was the associate of the Apostle Paul. Each of the gospel writers were either apostles or were directly connected to an apostolic witness. Luke was the partner of Paul. He was a personal physician, a doctor to Paul. He cared for him. No doubt he mended his wounds. And Luke is here with the Apostle Paul, and it's only Luke at this point. He's down to just Luke. And we can be confident he was glad to have his doctor and his friend Luke along with him. Now he goes on in verse 11 to tell Timothy, Now as you're coming quickly in this final command to come to me, I want you to do a couple of things. And number one, I want you to get Mark and bring him with you. And now you're thinking to yourself, now now Mark, now that name sounds familiar too. You're right, that's John Mark, and that is the author of the Gospel account of Mark. So you have Matthew, the tax collector, who was a disciple, one of the twelve. You have Mark, who is John Mark, a contemporary of the Apostle Peter and Paul, and specifically spent the bulk of his life with the Apostle Peter. You have Luke, who was the direct associate of the Apostle Paul, and a Gentile, and then you have John, who is one of the twelve, the beloved disciple. Those are your four gospel writers under the inspiration and direction of the Holy Spirit. It's interesting that at this point in verse 11, the Apostle Paul concludes this letter by wanting Mark to come to him. Do you know why? Do you remember why this is a fascinating thing that he wants Mark to come to him? Because there's a story in Acts that would lead you to think that Paul would not want Mark to come to him. Alright, let's do it. Let's go back. Acts chapter 13 and verse 13. Acts chapter 13. And I believe, yes, in verse 13. Mark, or John Mark, was called John, and he was called Mark, and he was called John Mark in the New Testament. Here we find him designated as John. And you'll see his name Connected here in just a few minutes. Acts chapter 13 and verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pophelia. And John, that is John Mark, left them and returned to Jerusalem. Mark was from Jerusalem. He had set out with the Apostle Paul. And at some point, for some reason, Mark had left the team and gone back to Jerusalem. This is very early in the ministry of Paul. Verse 14 says, But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down, and then it goes on to continue this narrative. The point here is that John Mark set out as a part of the missionary team, the original missionary team with the Apostle Paul. And at some point in the trip, he left and he went home. He went home to Jerusalem. And that never never went over well with the Apostle Paul. He did not take that well. In fact, we can see that if you turn over just a couple pages to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. Some time has transpired here. And in verse 36, after a lot of traveling and a lot coming back for the Jerusalem council at the beginning of the chapter, now Paul and Barnabas, their two brothers in ministry, Barnabas, the son of encouragement, The Apostle Paul here, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. All right, so here's what happens. They've come to the end of the first missionary journey and Paul says to Barnabas, hey, I got a great idea. Let's just circle back and let's see everybody. Let's go back and check on each of the churches that have been established, the local expressions of the church, 
that have been established in every city. Now Barnabas, in verse 37, wanted to take with them John, called Mark. Alright, that's our character. But Paul, verse 38, thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they, that being Paul and Barnabas, separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord, and he went through Syria and Sicilia, strengthening the churches. All right, that's the historical account that would make it fascinating that at this point in Paul's life, at the very conclusion of his ministry, he writes and says, Timothy, come with me, but don't come alone. Don't come alone. Bring Mark, because he is such a faithful and useful part of ministry with me. So we're not exactly sure what has happened, but this much can be assured. The testimony of John Mark, who went on to, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, pen the gospel account of Mark, that one, his faithfulness eventually set aside the reproach that he had gained with the Apostle Paul because of his early desertion from the trip. And really, you see Paul's comments there in Acts chapter 15, verse 38. He didn't do the work. I mean, Paul looked at anyone who left the missionary trip as one who had left the work. And the work was sharing the good news of Christ with all those that they came in contact with. All right? Verse 12, one final individual is mentioned here. Tychicus, another name that's not common because we're not Greek. Tychicus, he had sent, Paul had sent, to Ephesus. And you say, well, that's interesting because isn't Timothy the pastor at Ephesus? I mean, wouldn't Timothy know that Tychicus was there? Uh, I mean, why would Paul tell him this? Well, probably because Paul sent Tychicus to deliver this message. So it was probably the arrival of Tychicus that also uh, announced the arrival of this final letter from the Apostle Paul. You say, well, why do we say that? Well, because we have that testimony elsewhere in our scriptures. In fact, back in the book of Ephesians, at the very end, you're going to find out about good old Tychicus. Ephesians 6, verse 21, So that you also may know that I am, how I am and what I'm doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. He's delivering the letter to Ephesus. This is sometime earlier. He then shows up again in the church at Colossae, in the Colossian letter. In Colossians chapter 4 and verse 7, Paul says, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. And so Tychicus probably was, for lack of a better term, Paul's delivery boy. He was the guy who took the letter, he wrote it up, and he traveled back and he delivered it. This was your first postal worker, right here, Tychicus. All right, New Testament postal worker. And he had a great tour and he had a great letter to deliver on every single occasion that he was found faithful to deliver. In fact, he might even be the one that is mentioned in Titus. We also see his name come up in Titus. And he tells Titus, when I send Artemis and Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter here. And so Tychicus was always running errands for the Apostle Paul. All right. And so Paul says, here's my team, and none of them are here except for Luke. Demas deserted. Crescens, he's off to Galatia to minister to the church there. Titus is off to Dalmatia to minister to the church there. Luke is staying with me. Mark, I need him to come here to Rome. Tychicus is there in Ephesus. And I want you, Timothy, to join Mark and come and minister here with me in Rome. Now, why is Paul so concerned about this? Well, here is the desire of this final command. It's found in verse 13. Here's the desire, the reason for his urgency that Timothy come. He wants some things very practically brought for him. Though, no doubt, Paul desired fellowship and help, he was immensely practical as well. Notice verse 13. When you come, oh, by the way, Timothy, when you come, bring my coat, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments. Now, we don't know why Carpus had these, these articles that belonged to the Apostle Paul. These are very intimate articles. The cloak was his outer garment. It would have kept him warm. That's why he wants it. Winter's coming. He wants his big coat. 
he would have kept that as a prized possession. That was something that was very important at this point in the history of humanity. You didn't just leave your coat at someone's house like we would and pick up another coat out of the closet. He wants his coat. He wants his books. Those would have been the bound copies that he had, probably of the Old Testament scriptures. Papyra, bound, if you know the history of books and the history of binding. He uses a specific word here. These are probably the earliest bound scrolls. And then he says, not only that, but bring the parchments. And this would have been his most valuable possession, because these would have been vellum, this animal skins that were used for writing letters. These were extremely valuable. Now, why would Paul have left those in Troas? One of the best guesses, and that's all that it is, is that this is where he was arrested. This is where they came and found him. It was at Troas. And Carpus happened to be with him as a brother in Christ. And he, in the moment of being arrested, told Carpus, keep the stuff. I'll send someone to get it for me. Keep it here and keep it safe. Not knowing what would happen. That's one valuable guess. Because the Apostle Paul would not have just left these items out and about on his trips. And yet he's desperate for these items. These represent his physical well-being. He wants his cloak so that he's warm. He wants his books so that he can study. And he wants his vellum, he wants his parchments, because he wants to write. Now there's a little, there's a little lesson here. Um, good old Carpus is the faithful host. Um, he's a layman somewhere in Troas who has kept these things. But there's a little lesson from the Apostle Paul. When you're looking at this, and we just read, and we just studied verses 6 through 8, does it catch you by surprise? Are you a little caught off guard that he wants his books and his papers? I, I mean, he just got done saying, I finished the race, right? The Apostle Paul, faithful to the end, was working to the end. He did not know what it was to go another day without furthering the message of the gospel. He didn't know what it was to live a day of his life without giving himself to writing to the churches, to slaving over the text of Scripture so that he might understand more appropriately the God that he served. This was the Apostle Paul. There is no spiritual retirement. His testimony stands true. He worked to the end. He was faithful. And even now, in the moment of awareness that death is right before his face, he wants his his work tools. He wants his coat, he wants his books, and he wants his parchments. That brings us to from the final command. We saw the final confession in verses 6 through 8, the final command in verses 9 through 13, and now the final caution in verses 14 and 15. I mean, this must be bad because now two people have left within 30 seconds. Neither of them have gone like this as they left, so that's good. I'll take that as a good sign. All right, the final caution, verses 14 and 15. Here he mentions somebody that we think we may be aware of. We're not sure exactly who this individual is, but he warns in a final warning to Timothy about this guy named Alexander the coppersmith. He says, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm, and the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposes our message. Probably... The best understanding here is that Alexander the coppersmith is already at Ephesus. He's there. And Paul is telling Timothy, watch out for this fella. He's a dangerous man. He's not a friend. He doesn't want anything to do with us. He opposes us at every turn. So my final warning, my final caution to you, Timothy, is look out for Alexander the coppersmith. This is not Alexander from Acts chapter 19, verse 33. This is where um, cross-referencing can get you in a lot of trouble. You just take a name and say, well, where else do I see that name? And you find Acts chapter 19 and verse 33. This would not be the same individual because of region and timing and the description of what is given here. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried with one voice, Great is Artemis and the Ephesians. The point of Acts chapter 19 was that Alexander was actually Paul's friend. He came alongside of Paul and tried to stand up to the mob that was trying to kill Paul. That's not who we're talking about. Guaranteed. Because of the character of those two individuals. It could be the Alexander that we saw back in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Just a couple pages back. Probably a good chance 
that this is who he's talking about. You remember that he was warning Timothy about those who would err from the faith. He wants him to have a good conscience. By rejecting this, he says in verse 19, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Okay, They've been a part of the church and they've departed from their faith. Among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Probably a good chance, because of the context of these two letters, that that's who we're talking about in verses 14 and 15. He was a coppersmith, and somehow he had harmed Paul physically, and the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. I find that interesting in this final caution, that Paul has no bitterness. None. He's been wronged by so many people. He has been mistreated by so many different individuals. And here he mentions one of them. And notice that little phrase that he puts there at the end of verse 14. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. You know what the, the, the benefit of the lifestyle of Paul is in relation to this instance? It is that he is aware that God will vindicate and set right the record. And Paul lived with that awareness. That is, that is the safeguard against bitterness in your lives and in my life. You've been wronged. What will guard your heart from becoming bitter, holding anger and resentment against another individual? It will be the settled confidence that God will make this right. Bitterness comes from the frustration we have towards God that His timetable is not what our timetable is for making it right. That's where we struggle. We love it that He's going to make it right. We just want it to be right now. And yet Paul was settled. He was convinced that the Lord would deal with Alexander and his sinful actions against the gospel. And he just rested in that reality. Watch out for him, but be aware, God will deal with him. Whether in this life, graciously bringing him to repentance, or ultimately in eternity, that sin will be dealt with in the end by the Lord himself. That's Paul's final caution. And that leads us to his final confidence. This is really fascinating. Paul here now talks about what happened at Rome when he finally got there under his arrest. It could have been that Alexander the coppersmith is the one who turned him up for arrest and pointed him out to the authorities. He moves almost seamlessly into verse 16 and talks about what happened there at his arrest. Now notice it. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. Just like Stephen as he was being stoned. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be, fu- might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. First we see in these verses that Paul was experiencing at this point in his first defense a total desertion. I mean, everybody from the team was gone. Here he is, he's been arrested, he's been brought to Rome, and there's nobody else with him. There are no friends, there are no fellow believers. He's on an island by himself, standing there in his defense. The first defense is not a lot different than our court system. The Roman system had what we would know as an arraignment. It's where the charges were brought up. And so you would go to court, and you would make a defense, and there would be an accusation brought against you, and your defense would be made for the sake of not having that charge leveled against you, and ultimately the court would decide then what charges would be pressed against you. Then you would have your second, your second court date, which would decide what the courts were going to do with you because of your charges, if you were found guilty. So Paul here is talking about his initial appearance before the tribunal there in Rome. He says he's all by himself. There's no one there. It's a total desertion. Again, he has no bitterness. He doesn't want the Lord to hold that against the Christians who were in Rome. He is confident. He's confident and he's reminding Timothy of his confidence by verse 17. He was totally deserted, but he enjoyed a total confidence because this was the testimony of his life. The Lord stood by me and strengthened me. The Lord stood by me and strengthened me. Paul was alone but he was never alone. He was isolated, but he was never isolated. His Lord was standing by him the entire time and not only standing with him and comforting him, but 
enabling him to do what he must do, strengthening him in verse 17. For what reason? Why is the Lord there? Why is the Lord upholding his apostle? Why is the Lord making sure that he has the strength necessary to stand true in the face of such persecution? Well, verse 17 goes on to say, so that, here's why, so that through me, Paul says, the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. In other words, here I was in front of, in front of the Roman court system and all they had to do was say, you're charged as being a dissenter against the empire of Rome. You are charged for burning Rome and being a leader of the Christian sect. That's all they had to do and the immediate judgment upon him would be death. Over. Done with. Sentenced to death. It's a done deal. The Lord is there with him, strengthens the Apostle Paul, and what is for, and for what purpose? For the purpose of the message. I mean, is this not just classic the Apostle Paul? He's in the most dire circumstances, in the most serious situation. His life is coming to an end, and he's aware, because he's always aware, that God's doing what he's doing because of the Gospel. That's why I'm here. That's why we exist, to proclaim the message of the Gospel. A college student this afternoon was talking to me and was talking to me while they were talking to an unbelieving skeptic, an atheistic skeptic. And that atheistic skeptic was, was demanding of them, if heaven is so true and so great, why don't all Christians just die and go there? And I typed back in my instant message to the student, I said, do you know the answer? And they typed back to me, because we've been left here to bring glory to God through proclaiming the gospel, which makes me very happy. Because that's the right answer. That's exactly why we're here. And heaven is the, is the reward of those who are faithful here as followers of Christ. Paul was consumed with this reality that the gospel message would go in its fullness to all the known Gentile people. This was why he had been set apart as an apostle. And even in his latest hour, he is reveling in that truth. He uses this little... Um, this little phrase at the end of verse 17, so I was rescued from the lion's mouth. And that's not, that's not an actual, um, as far as we know, that's not a literal statement of Paul actually was rescued from a lion, um, as in a death trap. But that was a way of speaking, especially a Jewish way of speaking, of saying you escape death. Because of who? Who was really intimately associated with lions? Daniel, right, you, you were whispering it, Daniel. Um, Daniel. And that's why it's such a Jewish phrase that I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Paul's saying, I was rescued from death. Daniel 6, if you want to read that and go back to your flannel graph days, that's a great story of God's faithfulness. He's thrown to the, to the lion's den to be killed, to be eaten for a public spectacle, and the lions do not react because God is not done working with his servant Daniel. All right, that's the testimony here in this final display of confidence from the Apostle Paul. The Lord stood by him. And then verse 18 looks to the future. This is what has happened in the past in my circumstances here in Rome. This is what I know is being done in the present. The message is going out. And here's the future. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. Now understand for the sake of your worldview, what the Apostle Paul says there. He says, the Lord will rescue me and bring me into his heavenly kingdom. You see, Paul's view of those two realities is that they were synonymous. The rescue of God, the ultimate rescue of God, would not keep him alive, but would rescue him in his death to his heavenly kingdom. The Apostle Paul lived his life with an awareness that as long as he was here, he was here because God was working in and through him here. And God would ultimately rescue him from every evil deed that was done against him. How? Not by keeping him alive. It wasn't that he said, hey, I'm just going to go out by faith and say, God's going to get me out of here. He's going to get me out of prison. No, he says in verse 7 that he's pretty sure he's not getting out of prison. His confidence was not in a temporal rescue. His confidence was in the eternal rescue that was his in Christ. Verse 18, every evil deed, how? By bringing me safely into his heavenly kingdom. 
And for that, there is only the response of the end of verse 18, the doxology, to God be the glory forever and ever. Truly, this is true. Amen. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So we've seen Paul's final confession to Timothy in verses 6 through 8, his final command in verses 9 through 13, his final caution in verses 14 and 15, his final confidence in verses 16 through 18, and then we finish up with just these last couple of verses with the final conclusion for the Apostle Paul. This is really the last conclusion. This is the last, last words. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who is ill at Miletus, do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Just a couple of notes here. These verses are pretty straightforward. First Paul in verse 19 sends his greetings back to his closest friends. There was nobody closer to the Apostle Paul than Priscilla and Aquila. If you want to read about Priscilla and Aquila, Acts chapter 18 is their story. It's how they met Paul. It's about their ministry. Do you remember Priscilla and Aquila? They were tent makers. Paul had such a, a bond with these two individuals, this married couple. <clears throat> he loved them. They were tent makers and Christians. Um, they were tent makers and passionate about the gospel. You remember a young guy named Apollos in Acts chapter 18? He was standing up and preaching boldly, but he did not have sound doctrine. What happened? Aquila and Priscilla took him in and taught him the truth. These are, their, these are their stories, and this is who Paul greets here at the very end. And it's great because he shortens Priscilla's name and he gives her a nickname, which must have been what he called her. He says, greet Prisca. Prisca and Aquila. He shortens, abbreviates her name almost with, uh, with a, such a familial sense to it. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Onesiphorus is mentioned elsewhere, in chapter 1, he's actually mentioned, uh, May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. And so Onesiphorus was a helper to Paul. He actually went from Ephesus at some point and went to Rome to minister to Paul. Not afraid, not ashamed, and loved the Apostle Paul. Paul obviously knew his family, and so he greets the entire family of Onesiphorus. He gives updates in these last this final conclusion, he updates about people from Ephesus who were a part of his journey. I mean, surely at the end of this letter, Timothy's reading this and he's thinking, well, hey, we sent a couple guys from the church. Where are they? If they're not there with you, what happened to these people? And he says, well, I'll tell you what happened to them. Erastus remained at Corinth. So on the way, um, Erastus stopped off and stayed at the church at Corinth. That's where he is. And Trophimus, who was sick, stayed at Miletus. Interestingly enough, this late in the New Testament, Paul did not heal, did not heal Trophimus. Um, just a little side note, as we study spiritual gifts and the gifts of healing and the miraculous gifts of the New Testament, we will come back to the reality that Trophimus was sick and Paul did nothing to heal him. He actually left him at Miletus to heal. And that's why he left him there. So the Apostle Paul does not exercise a healing gift. He leaves Trophimus, who was from Ephesus, we believe, and was sick at Miletus. He wraps up this then with his greetings to his best friends in Ephesus. He sends updates about people from Ephesus in verse 20. And then he provides greetings to Ephesus from these new friends of his from the church at Rome. Eubulus sends greetings to you as do Putin's Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. We have no idea who these people are. We have no other history about them. They were just friends of Paul, and they were a part of his network, and he sends their greetings back. They wanted Ephesus to know, hey, tell Ephesus that we, we said hello and that we love them. That's what he does with his greetings. And then the last verse. Just like the Apostle Paul would end a letter, he says, The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. This is his benediction to Timothy. This is his benediction to the people at Ephesus. This is his benediction to us in his final inspired words. Penned here in this letter, this second letter to Timothy. And it always came back to the Lord and his presence with the Apostle Paul. 
The Lord be with you. And grace from God. Grace from God be with you. These are the most important facets that the Apostle Paul can think of. These are the final words. And he can't think of anything better to say than to pray out, The Lord be with you and may grace be yours. Okay? And that concludes this letter. That's the final detail. And that detail is difficult for us to study. It's difficult to read, let alone to sit here and listen to me talk about it. But it is important for us, and it is inspired, it is a part of our scriptures, but it's also important for us by way of application. Let me just give you just very, very briefly a couple of things to think about. Number one, Paul's ministry ended well. His life was well spent. I was talking this morning to one of the families here in our church, and they've just lost a, a loved one recently, and, and uh, I had the opportunity to go and be a part of the, uh, be at the funeral and, and rejoice in a loved one who had lived their life well, who had finished well, who had followed Christ faithfully to the end. And I told them this morning, I said, those are the best kind of funerals because we were just rejoicing in a life well spent, a long life well spent, faithful to the cause of Christ. The Apostle Paul's ministry and his life ended well, and I just ask you, will yours? Will mine? Paul's ministry ended with his heart still consumed with the message of the gospel, the presence of the Lord, and his affection and compassion for people. And that's how he ended his life. That is how he concluded there in his prison cell in Rome. Paul's ministry and his life was grounded in eternal truth. That's what preserved him. That's what helped him carry on. That's why he endured. And he was not superhuman. He wasn't. He wasn't just one slice off of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul was a sinner. Romans chapter 7. He was just like us. And yet he was consumed and renewed in his mind by the truth of the gospel. And it so wrapped up the Apostle Paul that he did nothing. He did nothing apart from a mindset of sharing Christ with the world that needed him. His life was grace-initiated. His life was grace-sustained. And his life in its completion was gracious to the end. So Paul's life and ministry, as he said repeatedly, and as we even read tonight in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, was to be imitated. And so I commend you to the imitation of the Apostle Paul and his faithfulness, his endurance as a minister of the gospel.